0: I was thinking about um, in my my text this morning uh, that we're going to look at from John chapter 11, another passage of scripture that kind of serves as a bookend to where we're going to be. So I just want to read to you what Peter said in the first sermon ever delivered. Uh, It was delivered on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. Uh, it, It was on this day that Peter delivered the sermon that birthed the church. He was preaching about Jesus. He was teaching the crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Church, our Savior is alive. And because He is alive, there is no agony in death. There's no agony. There's no no pain. There's no sorrow. Jesus has defeated the enemy of death. We're going to look at that this morning in this passage in John 11. Now, this is before Jesus' own resurrection, but this is a passage that gives us uh, an important perspective of His own resurrection. Jesus is going to perform an amazing miracle, and as He performs this amazing miracle, He's going to teach His disciples, He's going to teach those gathered, and He's going to speak to us of the reality of His own resurrection and what we find as a result of His resurrection. And so I pray this morning we see a new perspective as a result of Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, this passage is very familiar. It's been read at many gravesides. And you might be saying, well, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then why do we read such a passage at gravesides? Because if he defeated the final enemy of death, the graveside is the reminder that all of us will face a time when we will be placed in the ground. We read these passages because the grave is just a transition. It's not the final resting place. Jesus has assured us because of his resurrection that we too will be raised to new life. This passage in John 11 is packed with emotion and drama as we see Jesus interact with some of his closest friends friends that he loves, and he performs one of his greatest miracles. Now, perspective is important. Perspective is one of those things that that we need to see because when we look at a grave, we, we seem to think at that moment that life is over. There seems to be finality to it. When Peter said that Jesus was handed over according to the predetermined plan of God, but he was nailed to the cross by the hands of sinful men, we see that there is a perspective going on here. There is an earthly perspective, a one dimensional perspective of what men seem to do to Jesus. And yet, Peter informs us and raises our perspective to the divine perspective of what God was doing as he handed over the Son. To the predetermined plan to be our redemption. And, when, and so when we see a grave, you can look at a grave and say, life is finished. And that would be the earthly perspective. And, and some of us in our world, and maybe some of you have had these thoughts, want to think about death as few of times as possible in your life. You run from that. You flee from the perspective and reality that life really isn't going to last forever here on earth. And a passage like John 11 helps us change our perspective to see what God is doing, what God is promising. Perspective is really important. One of the lessons that I've learned again and again in my walk with Jesus is that life is a matter of perspective. That God is always doing something more than what I see. I mean, often I I tend to focus on the things that I see quickly and that captures my attention. And yet God, by His grace, has been faithful to teach me the value of seeing life through His eyes to catch that heavenly perspective that God does cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him. It doesn't happen overnight, though. It happens as a result of His faithfulness and His grace walking with us. Perspective makes all the difference. John 11 invites us to consider the ground-level perspective of sisters who are grieving in contrast with the do- divine perspective of our Lord who is announcing His victory over death in sin. The incident that we're invited to see here in Jesus' ministries is wrapped up in the historical reality of Jesus' own resurrection. And in that resurrection... He invites us to see the perspective of life that we often miss. And Pastor Dustin read this in 1 Corinthians 15 around I think verse 55 or so. That death is swallowed up in victory. I'm going to give you the end of my sermon right now and then you're just going to have to hang in there with me. But this is so important to say. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, death is not the final say in your life. It is the transition. It is the entrance into life with God forever. Into the truth and reality of what Jesus said in John eleven twenty five 25, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if they die, they shall live. And so I, there you go. There's your hope. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is not here. And this isn't something that was just kind of one of those, you know, backroom conspiracy kinds of things. There was an upper room in Acts chapter 1 of some 120 different people that had followed Jesus that were figuring out what was going on as it was happening live. Disciples and followers of Jesus who had watched their Savior die and be buried and saw the reality of His resurrection. And Jesus promised them that He would give them great power. And from that room of 120 people, and and can I just say, there's, there's probably more than 120 people in this room right now. That from that room, the world was turned upside down because those people placed their faith, vested their life in the promise and reality that Jesus is alive. In fact, many of those people gave their own life for the truth that Jesus had died, was buried, and risen again. And so, for us, if there's anything that we walk away from here uh, this morning, is the reality that God is setting our hearts for Him so that we can declare the reality of the resurrection to people that really don't know that Jesus is alive. Because He's alive, everything changes. It changed for these people that were gathered in John 11. It would change chapters later in John's gospel as Jesus is buried and and is risen again. It would change again in Acts chapter 1 and 2 as Jesus ascended to heaven and with power gave the apostles the gospel message to preach. And it changes with every generation as people faithfully walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been my prayer all week long that you would see the power of Jesus and that we would also see something to the approach that Jesus takes to people that are hurting. We rest in the power of Jesus and we need to be reminded of His ministry to us when we are hurting. And John 11 shows us that. The challenges and problems that we face Because I think we often miss the heavenly perspective of what God is doing in life. We miss how Jesus is drawing close to us on our hardest days, in our biggest hurts. And I pray that we see something of the heavenly perspective of the problems we face in light of the way that Jesus ministered to a group of people that were facing life's greatest enemy and that of death. And so in John 11, we're going to look at four scenes in this passage. We're going to look at, I think, 44 verses. And there's, there's four scenes that we're invited to see as we consider the power of Jesus in his resurrection and in the way that he ministers to, the, to those who are hurting the most. In John 11, verse 1, we read, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, and whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. There's a lot going on here as John sets the scene. John 11 is the the transition... And, and if you read the end of John chapter 10, we see that Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem in the region of Judea, which is around the area of Jerusalem, the city where, where Jesus would die. He was ministering in that area. And at the end of John 10, based on the things that he was saying and doing, there were people that were seeking to stone him and to take his life. They were seeking to seize him. And we read at the end of John's gospel in John 10 that Jesus kind of like walked right through the crowds And missed all of the the hands that were kind of reaching out. And what does John 10 say? That they went over across the Jordan River to where John the Baptist had ministered. And Jesus was kind of there in seclusion. Now he was ministering to the disciples of John the Baptist. But here they are outside of the region of Jerusalem in this wilderness area on the other side of the Jordan River. And this is where they're hanging out. And word gets to them that some of his closest friends, in fact, the text tells us that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. That word got to them that Lazarus was very sick to the point of death. And we're introduced to some things about the dynamic of what's going on in this passage. Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived in Bethany. It was about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. They had just left Jerusalem, crossed the Jordan River, were in the wilderness area, kind of just hanging out, laying low, because things were getting crazy in Jerusalem. And word had gotten that Lazarus was sick. If you notice in the text, in verse 3, the sisters sent word to Jesus. They sent word to him. They sent someone with the message. And what did the word say? Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. You know what's interesting about this? They didn't ask him to come. They said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, that word love is the Greek word that is used to explain friendship love. Like where we get Philadelphia. It's the Greek word philia. Friendship love. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. They send word to him. And they're thinking, he's going to come. He loves Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. What do we know about Jesus? He heals people. He heals blind people and lame people and people with great sickness. That's what Jesus does. Surely he's going to show up. They didn't even need to ask. They're just sending the word out. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So here's what we miss in the English text. Verse 3 says, The disciple whom you love is sick, referring to friendship love. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. is not the word philia, it's the word agape. Jesus self-sacrificially loved these people. He cared about their greatest interest. He was willing to sacrifice even himself for their behalf. Agape love is the highest kind of love in Scripture. So the word gets to him. What does Jesus do? He doesn't rush to Bethany. He doesn't rush there. He doesn't doesn't get the news and go, oh my, one of my closest friends, he's sick. I can help him. So let me get there as quick as I can to save him. What does the text say? So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't sound very Jesus of him, right? It doesn't. It doesn't seem like, I mean, it would seem like that Jesus would do anything to be there for his friend, that was at the point of death. But what did Jesus say about what was going on in Lazarus' life? He's not going to die. But what's going to happen in his life, right, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This is an important declaration because while we're about halfway through John's Gospel, When you get to John 12 and following, that's the final week of Jesus' life. John 1 through 11 covers two and a half years. John 12 through the rest of the gospel covers maybe two weeks. This is the last earthly miracle that Jesus will perform before he goes to the cross. And the last thing that he does in a public way is to show his disciples and to show us that he has power over the grave. Why? Because within two weeks, they're going to watch Jesus hang on a cross and be buried. And they're going to be confused and scared and worry and doubt. And Jesus is going to be raised and visit them. And he's going to show them the reality of everything that he's saying and showing in this passage. And so Jesus hangs out for a couple more days. Why does he stay two days longer? And we're going to read in the text how much longer uh, he was delayed in, in coming. I mean, the, the disciples in verse 7 were concerned, we can't go to Judea again. They're after you. We just came from there. They're seeking to stone you. Why would you go there again? Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, may, maybe what seem like strange words, but in the context, it's really clear to us when he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Listen, he's like, I'm ministering in the, in the daytime, in the light, and that was a reference to being in God's will. And when you serve God in the light of the day, God's going to protect you. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about whether it's, it seems like it's nighttime, because if you're in the will of God, it's really the daytime. His disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, what's strange is that word sleep that the disciples used, they should have understood what Jesus was saying. The New Testament understanding of sleep meant that you died. For some reason, they're so confused on everything that's going on, they just thought maybe he was taking a long nap. Really, maybe they thought he was in a coma. But he's going to wake up. And so Jesus is looking at his disciples who are struggling to figure out what he's saying about sleep. He's saying, guys, Lazarus is dead verse 14. He's dead. He just told them, he's not, Lazarus isn't going to die. Now he's dead. It's not that Jesus was mistaken about it or that he misspoke about what was going on. He says in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Listen, if Jesus was there and Lazarus died, and then somehow he came back to life, people might think maybe Jesus did something. Lazarus is dead. Now it's time to go to him. Because what I'm going to show you, disciples, is something that you need to see and here. Jesus waited two days longer. Now, can you imagine Mary and Martha? Like We don't get that perspective of what's going on while Jesus is in the wilderness talking to his disciples, waiting two days longer. They had sent word. They, I'm sure there's a great expectation and anticipation that Jesus is going to race to Bethany to help Lazarus. Can you imagine Mary and Mar- Martha watching their brother die and believing that Jesus had the ability to help? And with each minute, Each hour, Lazarus got closer and closer to death until he died. I mean, from their perspective, they might conclude that Jesus doesn't care about them anymore. And can we be honest? Sometimes on the ground level perspective of our own lives, we go through things where we think, God, do you care? God, I've cried out to you. I've waited for you. I've watched you deliver other people from trouble. I've read in the scriptures of the power that you have. Why does it seem in my life and situation that you keep waiting to come to me? Can any of you identify with thoughts and feelings like that? We see, though, that this delay that they experienced... And the ones that we experience are not Jesus being too busy or too uncaring, but these delays are delays of his love. His delay was a greater picture an expression of his love than if he would have raced right there and healed Lazarus just like that. As verses 7-16 through 16 indicate, Jesus does come. And so when they make the turn to return to Bethany, one of the disciples, called Didymus, who is Thomas, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we can die with him. They knew as soon as they headed to Jerusalem, trouble was coming. Thomas, this is the first time we hear anything that Thomas says in the Gospels, he'll be the same Thomas who will say, Jesus, show me the proof. Because he doubted. Right? Remember that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he showed Thomas the the prints in his hands of the of where the scars were. Thomas says, Hey guys, let's go. I guess we're goners. That's what, he, that's what he's expressing. But they're expressing allegiance with Jesus. And so they make their way to Bethany. The second scene that we come in contact with is when Jesus arrives to Bethany, he spends some time with Martha. In verses 17 through 29, we read this. So when Jesus came... He found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. It's now the fourth day of Lazarus's death. You can Google this. Make sure you aren't ready to eat dinner when you Google this. But you can Google what happens to the human body within 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours of death. Now, we do studies on this kind of thing. Can I just say by day four, there are things happening in the human body that clearly de- declare that the person that is dead is truly dead? Like all the bacteria begins to consume the host, the body. This isn't, well, he just passed away, maybe he's still alive and he's just going to come back to life, like, catch his breath. Lazarus is dead. We're going to read later on in this passage that when he is called to come out of the tomb, he's wrapped in in strips of linen and he was not embalmed because the Jewish people did not embalm people, but they packed them with spices. Why? Why? because they smelled. And so, he's not alive. And it's on the fourth day. And if anyone questions that Lazarus will be truly raised from the dead, it would be answered by waiting at least four days. I mean, this is Israel. This is Jerusalem. This is not chilly. like, let's just... If we lived in Alaska, throw him outside for a couple months. He'll be frozen. He won't decay. This is hot, arid climate kind of stuff. Lazarus has been in a tomb, and we read that many of the Jews came to console Mary and Martha. The Jews were experts in bereavement, they were. They, they, they handled bereavement really well. In fact, I think we could learn a lot from how Jewish people handled the bereavement process. Um, they, they would stop their lives. One of the stages, this is like the second stage of bereavement, it, it is the uh, perspective of Shiva. I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase, sit Shiva. It was used by the Jewish people for a period of seven days when a person died. Family and friends would gather and sit with those that are hurting. They would stop their lives for seven days. They carried bereavement to a whole nother level because there would be people in the community, and Bethany is only a mile and a half, up to two miles away from Jerusalem, that would come out of the city. They would have paid mourners, they would pay people to mourn outside at a funeral. And they'd be wailing and crying and all the things that go along with it. This is all what's going on at Mary and Martha's house for Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for four days, and the mourners are still there because they're only halfway through Shiva, And Jesus comes to Bethany, but he doesn't enter the city. He doesn't go to the home. He doesn't stop and knock on the door with some flowers and say, oh, my condolences to you. He's hanging out on the outskirts and Martha comes to him. Martha heard that Jesus was coming. And you can sense the tension that is in her as she comes and visits with Jesus. She's not mad at him, she realizes if Jesus was there, her brother would not have died. Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, there's a reality to that, like, yeah, we get it. But there's also this this part of her heart that is hurting. Like, Jesus, you love us. If you were here, we would not be experiencing this hurt. What I appreciate about Martha and we're going to see in Mary's same declaration is that she is honest with Jesus. She doesn't hide her feelings. Jesus comes and she doesn't say, ah, forget that bereavement stuff. Here you are, Jesus. We're so glad you're here. I'm going to put my happy face on and everything is great. Thank you so much for coming now. There's this part of her that's saying, Jesus, you, you could have helped. And I acknowledge that. But then she goes a step further, and she, she doesn't just stay there. She says, even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She was able to trust that Jesus is still good. Have you ever felt like Martha? Martha? How is there one flying this church, and it's flying around me? <laughs> Have you ever felt like Martha? Where are you, Lord? Lord, you came too late. Where were you when my loved one passed away? Where were you when my marriage fell apart? Where were you when my parents divorced? Where were you when a parent became an alcoholic? Where were you when I was cheated out of a promotion at work? Where were you when my child went astray? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? These are people that believe they're close to Him. Where were you? Listen. Ask the questions. Don't be afraid to share your heart. God knows what you're feeling. He doesn't want to have to, He doesn't want you to put on this happy face kind of thing, right? And that—that's really the bad advice we give to people sometimes in their grief and sorrow. Buck up, camper. God is sovereign. You know, we kind of slap them on the back and say, "Just read the Bible. You'll feel better." God is aware of what's going on in our hearts. He knows what we're feeling. Now, Martha doesn't just live in the frustration of what she sees. She believes that Jesus is able to do more. She stops herself in verse 22 and acknowledges, no matter what, Jesus has great power. Whatever you ask God, God will do. She understands that Jesus has great power because Jesus is God's Son what does jesus say your brother will rise again now martha knows that she knew her bible she knew what the jewish people knew that there would be a final resurrection in daniel chapter 12 as daniel is wrapping up uh, his prophetic book in daniel 12 it says that at the end of time Before Messiah's kingdom comes, the Jews will be resurrected and enter in. She understood that there is a resurrection, but she didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus isn't referring to that time, Jesus offers more than what she understood. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's here where Jesus offers some of his most quoted words in all of Scripture. This is the fifth of what John writes in his gospel of the I am statements. There's seven of them in John's gospel. This is number five, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That phrase, I am, in the Greek is the phrase ego me. It is the same I am that was translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Exodus 3 when God visited Moses in the burning bush, and he says, I am That I am. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not just saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, I am. I'm God in the flesh. And because I'm God, I am the resurrection and the life. He makes a grand declaration to Martha. He captures her attention. Not on what he's going to do for Lazarus, but who he is. Do you see that? Yeah, he says Lazarus is going to live. But what is his focus for Martha? Just know who I am. I'm the resurrection and the life. And out of the overflow of that, your brother's going to live. And not just your brother. Like you might want to highlight these verses, right? He who believes in me. How many he who's do we have here this morning? Right? If you know who Jesus is, this applies to you. Jesus says as a result of who he is and your faith in him, you will not die. You will live forever because He is the resurrection and the life. Without Him, there is no life. Without Him, there is no resurrection. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. He is our living hope. He is the I Am. Resurrection Sunday reminds us that Jesus defeated the greatest enemy we will ever face, the enemy of sin and death. And although his death was necessary to pay for our sins, the grave could not hold him. The question that he asks Martha is the same question that he's asking us. Do you believe this? Listen, I know you're here today. I know you're in church. You may even have a Bible. You may even do things for God. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That's the question that needs to be answered. Do you believe this? Deep down in the darkest of your dark nights, trying to figure out what is going on in the world, what is happening in your life, where is God when you cry out to him? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? And Martha answers well. Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. I think there's great, um, not symbolism, but I guess attention, To what she says here by john john's the writer of this gospel because john wrote this in his own gospel later in john 20 verses 30 and 31. john writes and this is after the resurrection therefore many other signs jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's quoting Martha here. This is like the high watermark of the declaration of a disciple in John's gospel. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, much like Peter in Matthew 16. You are the Christ. Martha gets it. She understands it. She knows who Jesus is. And because of that, she understands that what Jesus says comes with great power. Martha doesn't focus on the doctrine of resurrection. She doesn't say, you are the resurrection. You're the one that can raise people from the dead. No, she says, and keeps her focus on Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And what does Martha do? Like any good sister, she goes and finds Mary. She's like, this is so important. Mary, you need to see him. The teacher is here. And this brings us to the third scene. In verses thirty thirty through thirty seven we read now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she would she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And so Mary gets the news. He's still not in the village. Mary comes out Some of the mourners hear that Jesus is there. Um, Some of them don't know why Mary's going. They think that she's going to the tomb to do some more weeping. They're deeply grieved. It's been four days since they laid Lazarus in the tomb. She sees Jesus and she says, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't be dead. But notice Jesus' response to the pain and the loss and the hurt that these loved ones are experiencing. We read in the text that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now this phrase, deeply moved in spirit, carries with it the idea of a horse that is grunting. Like seriously, I'm not calling Jesus a horse, so don't worry about that. What I'm saying is what is his reaction to death? (sighs) And he's angered. That's what troubled means. He's angered at what sin and death cause the brokenness, the trouble that visits his creation as a result of sin. He asks, Where have you laid him? And they say, Come and see. And so they take him to the tomb. The crowds are there. The mourners are there. They're weeping. Mary's weeping. And Jesus wept. Now, what's interesting here. is the words that john uses paints a picture for us of what's going on around this tomb that the the mourners the people grieving they're like sobbing their eyes out they're crying and moaning and it's 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 all that kind of stuff the word that john uses to describe what jesus does when it says that jesus wept which shortest verse in the bible right you're trying to memorize scripture first verse you can memorize jesus wept you got one verse done the phrase jesus wept conveys a tear rolling down the cheek not this excessive weeping and moaning and all the things that go on with that he wasn't wailing in grief like the mourners he wept Tears fell down his face. Jesus' sorrows over the effects of sin. Death was never to be a part of God's plan, and he's seeing it. He's seeing it played out in the lives of people that he cares about. Here's the Son of God knowing what he will do this day and within a short time of his own death and resurrection, and he weeps with those who are weeping. Jesus is moved in compassion towards those whom he loves. If you are hurting, he wants you to know that he's weeping with you. Jesus is, as the author of Hebrews says, a sympathetic high priest who understands what we go through, and he's right there with us. Jesus is not a stoic deity. He's a sympathetic high priest. All the pagan religions, when they talk about their gods, they're these stoic figures that show no emotion. Jesus shows emotion. Jesus enters into our deepest sorrows and pains. And what does he do? He cries with us. The Jews thought his tears were based on the love that he had for Lazarus. They said that even Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death. And Now we come to this final scene. In verse 38, so Jesus again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there would be a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, "'Lazarus, come forth!' And the man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, "'Unbind him and let him go.'" So Jesus is brought to the tomb of Lazarus. The, the tomb was a cave and many first century tombs that were carved into the side of a hill or a stone would, would uh, hold up to eight different bodies. And Lazarus was probably placed as one of the at least few, maybe up to eight. The stone is over the door. Jesus requests that this stone be removed and And what does Lazarus' sister, Martha, say? It's going to smell really bad if you do that. But it took an act of faith of Mary and Martha to give permission for the stone to be removed. When Jesus says, You know what I told you? God's going to be glorified in this. And so they permitted for the stone to be removed now it's been four days and in the midst of this Jesus offers comfort when he says didn't I say to you if you believe their faith is called into action and what does Jesus do he prays to the father nothing of what Jesus does here in praying to the father is saying father resurrect this man he doesn't do that he's talking with his father crying out to his father and he gives glory to his Father for who he is. And what Jesus does here in simple words is expresses his authority over life and death. Being loosely bound, Lazarus, with the smell of death over him, came alive. Lazarus came to life he, Jesus is like, hey, take the stuff off of him. He's alive. The one thing we need to realize about Lazarus' resurrection here is that Lazarus would die again. He was brought back to life in his human form, but he would face a final enemy. When Jesus died and was raised on the third day, Third day, he's never going to die again. Jesus will never die again. He is immortal. Now, what we don't see in the text, it's hinted in verse 45 therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. The funeral became a party, there's no more mourning, there's a celebration. Lazarus is alive. Listen, perspective is everything. Everything that Mary and Martha experienced told them that there was no hope and then Jesus shows up and he changes everything. He elevates their attention to the fact that God is in control. Help is on the way. The delay they experienced was a delay out of love. It was for their greater benefit that Jesus was delayed. And it's in these delays that he brings us his truth. And he enters into our sorrow. And he often weeps with us. Jesus understands our pain. But when we trust in him, we find joy in these delays. Church, the empty tomb on Easter morning reminds us that Jesus is truly the resurrection and the life. Even if physical death comes, Jesus assures us that those who believe in him will never die. Now what is he talking about? Because he says in one word, you will never die. And then he says, but even if you die. So which is it? Well, it's both. The never die will be your soul that lives forever to be with him. The death that we experience on this earth is the physical death, the earth suit, the tent. It's wearing out. That goes away. But because of faith in Jesus, our spirit is immediately with the Lord. Do you know, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as you are breathing your last breath on this earth, your spirit goes immediately to be with Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I, it, you don't go into the ground. It's not soul sleep. You're not waiting something else. It is at the exact moment. It's like one and then again, the next thing. All at the same time. In the empty tomb of Jesus begs an answer to the question that he offered to Martha that hangs over us as well. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the victor over sin and death? That he has sufficiently and adequately paid for your sins through his death on the cross? Do you believe that he is not still laying in a tomb, but that he is alive. He is resurrected, and he is raised to new life, so that by faith in him, we too are raised to new life. Do you believe this? And when you do believe this, when you place your faith in what Jesus has already accomplished. And what did he accomplish? He satisfied God's holy wrath that was to be directed towards you for your sin. He paid for it. He experienced the full weight of it. He was crushed on the cross for your sins. Laid in a tomb. And three days later rose again as a victor over sin and death. When you believe in Jesus, death will not have the final say. Jesus has the final say and he says that we will live and never die. Let's pray.